Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The outbreak of the current conflict in Yemen nearly coincides with the start of this podcast back in 2014. Since then, I have had many, many guests on the show to discuss the latest iterations of the conflict and, above all, its humanitarian impact. And now, all those years later, Yemen remains the worst humanitarian crisis in the world today. More than 17 million Yemenis are food insecure, with over 150,000 people experiencing famine-like conditions. In late March, the heads of all the main UN humanitarian agencies said Yemen was, quote, teetering on the edge of outright catastrophe. The crisis began in the wake of the Arab Spring. A rebel group known as the Houthis captured much territory, including the capital Sana'a. The internationally recognized leader, President Hadi, fled to Saudi Arabia, and in March 2015, Saudi Arabia intervened in the civil war on behalf of the internationally recognized government and against the Houthis, which Saudi Arabia perceives to be backed by its arch-rival Iran. What followed was the destruction of a country and wide-scale immiseration, hardship, and death to the point where Yemen is routinely cited as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world today, and that includes Ukraine. But then, after years of fighting, the United Nations brokered a truce on April 2nd to coincide with Ramadan and last two months. The truce is intended to stop fighting inside and outside Yemen, open up a key port for fuel delivery, and allow some commercial air traffic in and out of the Houthi-controlled capital city. So far, over two weeks in, this truce is more or less holding. On the line with me to explain how we got to this ceasefire agreement and what happens next is Anel Sheline, a research fellow in the Middle East program at the Quincy Institute. We kick off discussing some very recent events in Yemen, including the ceasefire agreement and the Saudi-backed ouster of President Hadi, before having a longer conversation about the history of this conflict and how U.S. policy may shape events going forward. This is a very topical conversation. It will give you the context you need to understand events in Yemen as things progress and as the ceasefire hopefully holds. Yemen has not gotten the attention I think it deserves in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but obviously there has been some very significant developments in this conflict, which of course we discuss at length in this episode. As always, feel free to reach out to me at Mark L. Goldberg on Twitter or via email using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. I always love hearing from you. Let me know what's on your mind. And we recorded today's conversation live using Twitter spaces. If you ever want to participate in a live taping of the show via Twitter and ask my guests some questions of your own, uh, feel free just to follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg to be alerted when these recordings happen. Thanks. 
All right, now here is my conversation with Anel Sheline of the Quincy Institute. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Essentially, the, the ceasefire came about following some momentum from the two of the main warring parties. So essentially, we had seen the Houthis themselves unilaterally declare a ceasefire that was supposed to last for three days. And that was declared following a major high-profile attack that the Houthis carried out on an Aramco facility near Jeddah. And this almost derailed the Formula One race that was supposed to happen, um, did end up happening, but their drivers were panicked. This was one of, you know, this was an attack on the second largest city in Saudi Arabia, Jeddah. So following the Houthis truce, we then also saw Saudi Arabia declare a truce in the context of talks that the Saudis had convened among Various Yemeni parties, not the Houthis, the Houthis were invited, but they declined to attend, given that Saudi Arabia um, is an aggressor in this conflict. So it was this momentum that the, the Houthis themselves declared a truce, and then the Saudis declared a truce in the context of these talks. And then it was this that then UN Special Envoy um, Hans Grunberg was able to build upon to then declare not only a truce for Ramadan, which was the initial hope, but a truce that is supposed to last for two whole months. Thus far, it is shakily holding. There have been reports of violations on both sides, but the Yemen Data Project has reported that they have not recorded any new Saudi airstrikes since the truce. Um, I've, I've heard some conflicting reports of that, but I, I usually trust the Yemen data project on this. However, unfortunately, two of the terms of the truce may be in danger of breaking down. So the Saudis did allow in two fuel ships to the port of Hodeida, which is part of the agreement for the for this truce, but they thus far have not allowed in any more. And we also have not yet seen any flights uh, resuming through Sana International Airport. It, these are two very important aspects of the truce, and if they continue to not be fulfilled by the the Saudi-led coalition, the unfortunately the Houthis may decide uh, that that the truce has been effectively broken. And, and just to be clear for those unaware, uh, the Houthis control Sana'a, the capital city, and the airport on the ground, but the Saudi and its coalition controls the airspace, uh, and thus far throughout the duration of the conflict has denied commercial aircraft from landing and, and taking off in Sana'a, uh, more or less. Yes. 
Um, and, and I've also seen reports from you know, credible journalism outlets that uh, Houthis have also, there have been perhaps violations of the ceasefire, uh, not on a large scale, but on smaller scales in and around Marib, which is this contested oil-rich area that is sort of mostly outside Houthi control. Have, have you seen those as well? Yes. So I have definitely heard um, from friends in Marib uh, that, that say the Houthis have violated the terms of the truth and from journalists and observers on the ground. Um, who say that that both sides have have violated the terms of the truce? This is not totally unexpected, and uh, you know it is possible that the the sort of overarching truce itself could hold, um, despite some of these sort of smaller violations on the ground. But again, I, I for me, I think the most important thing to keep in an eye on will be whether additional fuel ships are allowed in and whether flights are permitted. Mm-hmm. Um, because if those continue to, to not happen, I do worry that, that we're likely to just see an all-out resumption of hostilities. And so just one, uh, one factor there is also the outcome of the Riyadh talks, which was, as, as you mentioned, President Hadi, who had been... Um, the the official internationally recognized president of Yemen, although he had been effectively powerless and, and in exile in Riyadh um, since escaping in 2015, um, that he delegated under pressure his authority to a new presidential leadership council, um, which is essentially an anti-Houthi coalition. So this is a, a, a conglomeration of individuals, some of them backed by the UAE, some of them definitely not backed by the UAE because some are members of ISLA, the Islamist um, political party that the UAE uh, views with suspicion. Um, and so the the question after this presidential leadership council was formed was, is their primary objective to form a unified front to negotiate with the Houthis or to form a unified front to fight the Houthis. Um, and this is where I think U.S. pressure can be really instrumental here, because if the U.S. makes it clear to the Saudis that if sort of the, the presidential leadership council, which was effectively sort of put together by the Saudis, if they resume hostilities or if the Saudis resume hostilities, that the U.S. will no longer provide any kind of military support. Um, this would be one way to really try to make it clear to the Saudis that we, the United States, intend to support this ceasefire and are, are really uninterested in continuing to offer any kind of support for military involvement. Um, this would this is what I would suggest. However, it's not clear necessarily that that's what the Biden administration intends to do. So the Wall Street Journal reported uh, just yesterday, I think, or perhaps the day before, uh, that indeed it was under heavy Saudi pressure that Hadi was uh, forced to basically delegate his powers to this presidential leadership council. And it's I, I'm interested to hear you frame that decision as perhaps going one of two ways, either to present a unified front in 
diplomacy with the Houthis or militarily uh, against the Houthis. Have you seen anything yet in these early days to suggest which way that might go? Um, so thus far, you know, the, the statements that have been made um, by the, the head of the Presidential Leadership Council have indicated that their intent is to negotiate. Um, so I certainly hope that that remains their position. Um, and and again, I, I do think that um, part of why we saw the Saudis really put this level of pressure on Hadi to the extent that he was finally willing to step aside. Um, I think a lot of that did come from this high profile attack on Jeddah because the essentially Mohammed bin Salman is trying to use high profile events like this, the Formula One race or the, the various concerts or wrestling matches that he's been holding in Saudi Arabia to try to show evidence that the Saudi kingdom has changed, that it is open to investors, it is open to tourists. And so even just a single attack like that um, can really damage that image. And so this was a similar dynamic to what we saw when the Houthis successfully uh, launched a drone attack on Abu Dhabi back in mid-January that unfortunately did kill three workers at an oil facility outside Abu Dhabi. And similarly punctured this very carefully crafted image of the UAE as a bastion of of stability and security and and a, a hub for travel and investment um, in in a, a region that unfortunately does remain quite volatile. Um, and so I do think that you know it only takes one attack like that for travelers and investors to to feel nervous about traveling to these places and so really raises the stakes in terms of what the Saudis and the UAE are are uh, sort of changes their calculus in terms of um, their preferred outcome for the war I mean and, and it's it's a little frustrating for me as someone who watches Yemen given that Yemen has dealt with hundreds of air raids a day frequently. And, and so then just a single attack on, on, on Abu Dhabi, for example, or, or this very high profile attack on Saudi Arabia, and suddenly everything shifts, um, it just sort of is an indicator of the extent to which uh, Yemen is just not really a priority or the people of Yemen are, are just not, uh, not really counted. Um, but but again, I, I do think it is it has shifted the perception of both the, the Emirati leadership and the Saudi leadership. And I mean, unfortunately, on the one hand, we could see their response be one of aggression. We did see the UAE retaliate with airstrikes following their attack. And we then saw the UAE pushing very hard for the Houthis to be redesignated as a foreign terrorist organization, um, despite the fact that the lifting of this designation was one of the very first things that Biden did when he came into office, such mm -hmm. that it, it would be fairly surprising for him to reverse himself there, but the Emiratis were really insistent on this. 
Mm-hmm. It hasn't happened yet, but there's there is still a question. We've heard people like State Department spokesperson Ned Price say things like referring to the Houthis as terrorists um, more frequently than he had previously, even though they're not officially designated. Um, so again, I, I do think this is why the U.S. role is so crucial here, because mm-hmm. if the U.S. signals that we agree with this more aggressive stance from the Presidential Leadership Council and from the Saudis and Emiratis and that we're going to keep supporting their aggression against Yemen, then I think they would be all in. Whereas if the U.S. makes it clear that that we are unwilling to continue to sell any weapons to either of these security partners, um, as long as they remain involved in, in military hostilities in Yemen, you know, this this is an opportunity right now because there is this truce and the Saudis and Emiratis could potentially get out of the war and save face to a certain extent. I do want uh, to get more in depth with you uh, on the role of the United States in this conflict. I do want to take just a brief moment now, though, for listeners who you know are not as enmeshed into the ins and outs of this Yemen conflict to have you you know briefly explain you know how we got to this point. I mean, I've been publishing episodes of this podcast since 2014, which roughly coincides with this rebel group that I had not really heard of before called the Houthis, um, basically uh, taking over control of, of much of Yemen. And now, you know, eight years later, we're at this point where this one's ragtag group of rebels are able to launch sophisticated uh, airstrikes and military attacks in neighboring Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Can you just kind of briefly explain for listeners how we got to this point, how this conflict began? Sure. So essentially, the the Houthis themselves are a movement that originated in northern Yemen. They are Zaydi Shia. And uh, originally, they they coalesced around opposition to Saudi efforts to spread Wahhabism in in their area of Yemen. Um, then, so this was sort of a, a religious revivalist moment that was frustrated with um, sort of these this Saudi efforts to infiltrate their part of the country. Um, and then, subsequently, they fought a series of six wars with the central government of Yemen led by Ali Abdullah Saleh. Uh, Then during the Arab Spring, major protests finally ousted Saleh, who had been a a very corrupt uh, dictator ruling Yemen for decades. And there was a, a political transition process put in place to try to establish a more just framework for governing Yemen. Um, and one of the outcomes of that was to try to establish a federal system whereby different areas of Yemen would have more autonomy. Um, However, the Houthis were concerned about this because it would have essentially relegated them to their small and fairly impoverished corner of Yemen, and and they uh, were were just concerned about what that would mean for their future. And so, unfortunately, they took up weapons in response. Um, Also, groups from the South that want to, uh, that would like, South Yemen to, again, be independent as it used to be, to be its own country, um, also took up weapons um, to oppose the outcomes of the National Dialogue Conference. 
And so it, it was at that point that then we saw the Houthis um, uh, transition from merely one of several uh, sort of disgruntled groups to accumulating a lot more power. And part of the way they did this was by allying with President Saleh, who at that point was no longer president, but was uh, eager to, to try to re-establish himself as being in power. And he saw the Houthis as a good bet. Um, and so this is part of where some of the Houthis' weapons come from, because they were allied with Saleh, who still had the control of the Yemeni military. Um, so the Houthis took control of the capital city of Sana'a, and um, the interim president, Hadi, was forced to flee. Um, and it was at that point Hadi requested assistance from Saudi Arabia and from the international community. And the UN, for example, um, supported the Saudi intervention and supported efforts to prevent Iran from smuggling in any weapons to the Houthis. And there was there was this sort of general perception that the Houthis had acted as a spoiler and, and thrown Yemen's political transition off the rails, um, which which is accurate. That is what happened. But unfortunately, in the intervening seven years, the Houthis have merely consolidated power. They have received additional support from Iran, although in general, um, I think some of the, the paranoia about Iranian support is somewhat overblown, especially given the scale of the weapons and resources that the Saudis and Emiratis are pouring into supporting their preferred groups in Yemen, for example. Um, but essentially, the, the Houthis have managed to really consolidate power in the former North Yemen. Um, as you mentioned, they, they have been trying to take control of Marib, which is one of the last, essentially the last stronghold of the internationally recognized government, um, when that was still led by President Hadi. Now, with the Presidential Leadership Council, you have this coalition of anti-Houthi forces that represent a much broader swath of territory um, from, from all over the, the territory of Yemen. However, again, the, the vast majority of Yemenis, about 80% of the population, live in the former North Yemen, much of which is controlled by the Houthis. Um, and so when you look at a map, sometimes it, it looks like, uh, you know, there, there are large swaths of territory that are not controlled by the Houthis. But when you actually think about who the people are that are affected by things like the Saudi-led blockade, that is, again, 80% of Yemen's population. That's, a, I think, a, a very helpful sort of catching up uh, for, for those who have not followed this terribly closely. Uh, but throughout this conflict, we are now in the third U.S. presidential administration that has had to um, deal with this conflict, has been involved in this conflict in one way or another. And, you know, it's interesting to me to note that this ceasefire agreement, which is more or less holding, coincides with some momentum perhaps in Congress around a war powers resolution that would, you know, tie the administration's hands in terms of how it would support the Saudi-led coalition. Can you explain what this war powers resolution um, stipulates and whether or not you see any connection 
between the timing of this ceasefire and growing momentum in Congress towards reining in uh, U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition. Yes. Well, and what's interesting is that U.S. actions and especially U.S. congressional actions in the past have often correlated with things like the frequency of of air raids. So we we know that Saudi Arabia is playing, paying close attention to what the U.S. is doing, again, because Saudi Arabia is so dependent on the U.S. to wage this war. Two thirds of the Saudi Air Force are U.S. made and thus could not fly without the assistance of U.S. military contractors. Um, And so the Saudis do not want to be in the humiliating position of not being able to fly their own planes if the U.S. does decide to withdraw support. Um, So previously, for example, we had seen Congress successfully pass for the first time ever since the War Powers Act was established in 1973. uh, They passed a War Powers Resolution in spring of 2019 that would have ended all U.S. support for this war. And unfortunately, President Trump vetoed it. Um, But as you said, now momentum is building again. Um, We've had uh, Representative Jayapal and Representative DeFazio commit to to introducing a Yemen War Powers Resolution that, again, would end any kind of U.S. support for for military action against Yemen. Um, And we've now heard um, from Representative Ro Khanna, for example, as well as Representative Adam Schiff. And on the Senate side, Bernie Sanders have all committed to supporting this War Powers Resolution. And so I, I do very much think that the the Saudis are um, paying close attention to this. Uh, thus far, the Biden administration, even though early on in Biden's tenure, he had said that this war must end and that the U.S. was going to end all support for offensive military action. Unfortunately, we did not see any kind of decline in Saudi airstrikes, um, which really then leads one to question of whether U.S. support declined at all, because we would have expected airstrikes likewise to decline if if the U.S. were really ending um, support for offensive actions. And unfortunately, we saw them um, maintain sort of similar levels of airstrikes as the final year of the Trump administration. And then we saw a big uptick in uh, in airstrikes. Um, there was a recent human rights report that just came out or human rights watch report that just came out sort of detailing the level of the the civilian deaths that were carried out in the early part of 2022 um, as a result of this this escalation in airstrikes. Um, So it's I, I very much think that the U.S. has a lot of leverage here. We've heard people like former Obama administration official Ben Rhodes speak to this effect as well. Um, And, uh, you know, unfortunately, however, I think there are certain members of the Biden administration that uh, are would would rather continue to support the Saudis and Emiratis on this and are willing to sacrifice Yemen um, because they they view those relationships as as more important than than the, the future of Yemen and the lives of Yemenis. Lastly, 
we're at this seemingly very consequential inflection point in the history of the Yemen conflict, where we have a ceasefire, fragile, albeit holding more or less. In the coming you know, days or weeks or months, what will you be looking towards that will suggest to you either whether or not this ceasefire can be harnessed into some sort of meaningful truce or on the opposite side, whether or not this will just kind of fall apart and will return to the awful status quo of the last several years? Well, as I said, the the two indicators I'm especially watching are whether Saudi Arabia allows in additional fuel ships um, to the port of Hodeidah. They had agreed that ships would be allowed in during this truce, and also that Sana'a Airport would reopen for commercial flights. Just, um, I believe it was two flights a week to uh, Cairo and Amman, Jordan. Um, And we haven't seen that happening yet. And so I do worry that if if we continue to see no progress there, that essentially um, the Houthis will see no reason to negotiate or to um, maintain the ceasefire. They will see it as having been violated. And and just one one note about the Houthis themselves, they are. They're good at fighting and thus far um, have not necessarily been terribly good at governing. And so, unfortunately, to a certain extent, the Houthis themselves may be more interested in continuing to fight than in trying to settle down to the business of governing. And this is part of why I think it is so important that, you know, even for People within the Biden administration, for example, who might fear um, a Houthi-led government in Yemen because they they see that they see them as Iranian proxies, or they uh, they just don't don't like the idea of the Houthis controlling um, or asserting partial control over this very important uh, geographic area of the the Bab al-Mandeb Strait at the bottom of the Red Sea. But again, the longer this war has lasted, the more control the Houthis have managed to accumulate. And um, somewhat similar to the Taliban in Afghanistan, where you have uh, this narrative of legitimacy because they are fighting against foreign aggression. And so even if there, there are Afghans who wouldn't have supported the Taliban or there are Yemenis who don't support the Houthis, but But they're willing, you know, they would rather survive under Houthi control or Taliban control than continue to be killed by the violence coming in from foreign aggression. So I I would just say that it's it's really in the it's it's imperative that Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the US and the other European countries that continue to profit from selling weapons um, to countries like Saudi Arabia that the most important thing, even if even if they are very opposed to the notion of a Houthi takeover, their continued involvement is just making that more likely. Um, and so it, it really is imperative uh, for for foreign involvement to cease and to try to return control of this conflict to the Yemenis themselves. Uh, well, Anel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Anel. That was very helpful and timely. And again, you know, the events in Ukraine obviously have uh, dominated the media uh, in recent weeks and, you know, understandably so, but it's also, I think, worth recognizing and, of course, spending time discussing other key events around the world, which, of course, this podcast and I promise I will do as I always have done since 2014. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.